standard issue for all women. Hello there, Mickey here. Welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. If you've already listened to this week's podzine, and if not, why not? Hmm? Then hopefully your appetite has been whetted for my full chat with the legitimately awesome Annie Nightingale. If you're wondering who she is, then you've, well, you've clearly not listened to Radio 1 in the past 50 years. Annie Nightingale is Britain's first female DJ, the longest serving woman at Radio 1, fierce champion of new music and, as you're about to discover, an utter delight. We had a cracking chat about Annie's latest book, Hey Hi Hello, the five decades of pop culture it covers, the sadness of nostalgia, being awestruck by the mere mention of Miles Davis and what to do if you find yourself in a lift with Paul Newman. Thoughts on a postcard? Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by Britain's first female DJ, muso extraordinaire and broadcasting legend, Annie Nightingale, to chat about her new book. Well, Annie, I think it is only right if you tell us the title. Hey, hi, hello. Of course it is. (laughs) I used to do a show on Sunday night on Radio 1, and it came right after the top 40. And so the idea was that first record you played would be a kind of very familiar, something that makes people think they're still listening to the top 40, to keep them listening. So I wouldn't speak until just before the vocal came in, and I would just say, hi. And people were intrigued by that. And like, why did you say it when? And they didn't understand what the trick was. And so that's, that's when that began. And then now I say, hey, hi, hello, as you open my show anyway. And I don't know how it came to me as a title for a book, but it did. And I think titles can be very difficult to get right, actually. And then publisher likes, I thought, thank goodness for that. (laughs) that Just before we talk about Hey, Hi, Hello, I wanted to ask you about the current situation we find ourselves in. Because you were a war baby and there have been a lot of comparisons made between that time and what we're going through now with COVID-19 and lockdown. And I just wondered, what do you make of that? That's a very good question. I was born, yeah, I was born into World War II. I was was a baby. Do you know, having been a party animal for a long time, I missed the VE Day party, the street party. (laughs) I had measles. I still haven't got over it. I'm still annoyed. (laughs) I missed the first big party ever. So... But I did grow up, and obviously the rationing thing, lack of anything new, went on for many years. So, yes, I do see parallels with what's going on now. Um, you know, when it began, we had that shortages, and people were coming, would come out of your house or something, and say, I'll, you know, I'll give you a loaf of bread or something. I thought, this actually reminds me. And I felt better able to deal with it. I thought, okay, we're going rationing. We're going shortages. It will be like World War II. So deal with it. Don't moan, don't complain. Everybody has to deal with that. And so, yeah, it did have slight echoes. And in a way, I felt I've been through this once, so I should actually be able to deal with it perhaps better than mm-hmm. other people who, to whom, obviously, everyone's a horrible shock to realize that suddenly everyone's life is absolutely upended. Yeah. We don't know when that's going to stop. So, in a weird way, yes, it, it did. How I'm dealing with it is, I don't know what it is. I suddenly feel all kind of, um, let's get back to basics. What you say to people is, have you got a roof over your head? Have you got any food? Have you got any money? Have you got a job? Because frankly, 
that's what it's come down to mm -hmm. survival and um i am deeply worried every time you open up papers read the news page you know six thousand jobs lost to somewhere you think what are these people going to do yeah how i'm i'm feeling absolute despair for the population which i mean i'm sure everybody feels the same but it is a, a terrible terrible worry as to what is going to happen what can you do well be nice to people be supportive forget all your little moans and grumbles that you might have had you know let's try help each other through this i know it sounds a bit goody goody and halo-ish but i don't mean to be um virtue signaling but that's really how i feel though i think we need you know we need to get on to what really matters in life yeah definitely i think kindness can work miracles absolutely yeah, and our people have been incredibly kind to me. I've been so moved and touched by how people have been to me. I mean, I feel incredibly grateful. What music have you found yourself reaching for most over the past few months? Well, I play new music, so I just do play the best show I can. People seem to turn back to the broadcast more. You know, you've got Spotify, which is huge, but Spotify doesn't have anybody talking to you. Mm -hmm. And I think people actually need, you know, people like having a, um, a human voice. But in terms of the music I've played, well, actually, yeah, there's one that I really want to become a hit. And it's called Just Hold On. Uh, it's just a dance record. but And I said to radio, well, I think it's a hit. And they, it got on the playlist, but I don't know what happens after that. So, yeah, you're looking for tunes that might have some uplifting meaning and mm -hmm. what's also happening is I tell you what this period feels a bit like the 70s as well when punk happened and you know the social comment that went through that and so you're getting I don't know if the streets mean anything to you but yeah. um and he's just made a, a great album which is really reflecting how we're feeling so that is coming out and then the Eminem track recently which had uh, talking about wearing a mask so yeah the, the music is is re reflecting what's happening which I thought it would and of course all the DJs are all stuck can't play anywhere no festivals no touring so yeah people are turning and they've got a studio so yeah I think the music is beginning to reflect what's happening I think that will happen more and more Oh, let's hope so. But let's talk about your book. Hey, Hi, Hello is a joyous read. It is absolutely jam-packed with anecdotes from your 50 years in broadcasting on radio, on TV, on the live music scene, and it's interspersed with transcripts of past interviews that you've done. At the beginning of all this, though, you really were a woman on your own, the first female DJ on the BBC when you joined in 1970, and you stayed the only woman DJ there for another 12 years. Can you tell us a story of how you made that happen, how you became the first female DJ at the BBC? Well, I was very persistent. <laughs> I could not understand. I'd worked in television, written in magazines, newspapers. I, I mean, I'd started out as a general reporter, but you know, I'd done all that. But, you know, I had a music column, so I felt equipped, you know, professionally enough to do it. It wasn't just kind of, you know, some kid going, hey, can I be on the radio? I mean, I felt <laughs> I, I had enough experience to be able to do it so Radio 1 had started in 1967 they said quite early on there will be no female DJs That's mad. and I was staggered because I thought well why you know just why 
So I began a campaign. Feminism was very much coming in. You had think magazines like Cosmopolitan coming in. I used to write their music column for them. Uh-huh. And so the feminists were being you know, much more uh, uh, you know, uh, active. And so I could not understand this attitude and why. And in the end, it came out that they said, this job is a husband substitute. And I thought, what an extraordinary outmoded attitude. Mm-hmm. I don't know that they had some picture, some 1950s idea of the men go out to work and the women stay at home with a frilly penny making fairy cakes. <laughs> so they need a DW husband substitute. So I thought it was ridiculously outmoded attitude. But looking at the management, that is probably what their wives did. Yeah. In fact, one or some executive wife, and I you know, went to some do, some do at the beginning, and she actually said to me, aren't you afraid you'll lose your femininity? And I thought, <laughs> Ah, well, there we are. I had often been the only female in, you know, in the in a newspaper office. I didn't think anything of it. I just had great fun. Gender did not come into it. Actually, I'm working for magazines and TV. That sexism reared its head more at, at Radio One than it had ever done before for me. Mm-hmm. I was really shocked, and so I began this campaign writing in magazines about about Radio One, whatever, and then. So it took three years. And in the end, I think the public opinion was such that they almost had to take somebody on. And because I'd been pestering them and sending them tapes or really badly recorded them, or I'd go in there and meet them and give them records. They've got fingerprints all over the vinyl. <laughs> and they go, oh, we can't play this. So I think if I just wore them down eventually. But then you think, oh, well, am I just the token woman? And the fact that there wasn't anyone else, I thought, after me, they all come streaming through the door. But I was quite surprised when there weren't any more. And then I thought, well, maybe I'm a freak that no one else female wants to do this job. But I have actually no idea whether there were other women who came along, got turned down. I have no idea to this day. And until Janice Long happened. And because now we don't have parity, but it's a lot better. Yeah. To the extent that we don't like being called female DJs because we're DJs uh-huh. and the male DJs don't call, get called male DJs. Absolutely. And actually the current crop of DJs or women at radio, I feel quite strongly about that and I agree with them. Definitely. The DJs you were talking about earlier, the, the kind of DJs who go on the road, the superstar DJs, there's still quite a lot of work to be done there though, isn't there, to get anywhere near parity? That you mean people like that who are not on the radio? Not on the radio, the other kind of DJ. Ah, no, there is a lot of work to be done, yeah. It's still, you know, there's an annual DJ magazine, they're very supportive to me, but they have an annual poll and you see very, very few women in that top 100. And it's nothing, it's not DJ magazine's fault, but I've supported, you, you probably wouldn't have heard of her, somebody like Alice in Wonderland, who is actually Australian, lives in LA, and I think there are a few more coming through in America. It might be a bit better, but there's still that bias, definitely, whether they um, expect it to look decorative. The moment they say, you know, they want you to dress like some, I don't know, uh, sexualized, then we have to go, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I mean, it doesn't happen to me at my age, but um, there is all that that goes on. And so, you know, whether they're there to be you know, female sex symbols, we can't have that. We, you know, I mean, obviously it's not up to me to t- tell someone what to do. But if you want respect for what you do, we've got to be treated equally. Yeah. There are very few. It's true. Or they're treated like sexualized people. Yeah. I can remember DJing one, once in, in Constanta in Romania and playing at the, what at the time it's called Breakbeat. And suddenly this girl got up and started dancing on the stage with me. Go-go dancers. And I thought it was quite funny in a way because the beat was not the kind of 4 4 house beat. And they didn't actually know what, quite what to do. Which is it's quite funny in a way, but um, the fact that they were still employing go-go dancing yeah, wow. on stage with the DJ, I thought, well, there we are. That's what happens in Vegas now, which has kind of taken over again the role as being the dance music capital of America. Couldn't imagine that happening a few years ago. But where the nearer you sit to the DJ, the more you pay. And the status thing, and having the you know bottle service, the most expensive champagne, all that has come back into it, which is very sad. And that's happening in China as well. All the advances we made in rave and acid house, and all that, I feel that a lot of ground has now been lost because Vegas, who were obviously become really out of date since the days of Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin suddenly realised that there's massive amounts of money to be made in putting on you know, dance events. And some of these DJs earn $45 million a year. Wow. But I don't think any of them are women. No. I'm going to take you back in time a little bit now where people weren't earning $45 million. And as a child of the 1980s, I remember your voice as the one that came immediately after the top 40, as you mentioned earlier. And you introduced Little Noonan to a lot of exciting sounds. So thank you very much. But you very specifically gunned for evening rather than daytime DJ slots for a really good reason, didn't you? Well, yes, because I I realised, and bearing in mind when I joined radio, it still finds its way as what it was going to be. Mm Mm-hmm. And so it kind of evolved into this sort of daytime people being entertainers and the evening people playing what they like. And obviously, I could hear the stuff in the evening thinking, well, that's much more me. Yeah. I'd always played what I wanted, but I didn't really know what to do with me at the beginning. <laughs> um, and so they put me on in the afternoons as a sort of review slot because you we weren't allowed to have uh, what's called the, all, the needle time then which meant you couldn't play just records all day long, music all day long. I had to have BBC sessions and all kinds of rules. So I was reviewing records. I wasn't being you know, the proper DJ. You know, they, they were trying to find what to do with me. And most people wanted a daytime slot because then you got much more famous and you probably earn a lot more money from outside the BBC, from personal appearances and stuff. But um, I wanted to play the good music that's coming through, the new music. So I said and I'd be on in the evening and I think the best decision I ever made because then I didn't want to play playlist stuff that wasn't the point of being the, why I wanted to be on radio was I had a passion for music I was used to writing about it but I thought really really want is to play it you want to play it to your mates and yeah. say 
what do you think of this? And when that Sunday night show happened, and it's only really in retrospect, I real I found this brilliant audience that were very special. And I thought that show would last, but it was on for three months and it's supposed to be a filler. And then it started to do well. And I thought, well, they'll still kill it off because it's too weird, too, too strange. And that went on for 12 years. <laughs> it's quite and an extension. I feel very fond of the people. It was very much the audience show. And I think that a lot of the students, the people doing their homework, on Sunday, who should have done it on Friday. And they had a, a radio, and obviously pre-internet day. But in order to write a request, you've got to have, find a piece of paper and a pen and a stamp and then take it to the post office. A lot more fuss than sending an email. Mm-hmm. And so then they, they went, I read everything. And they, they would go to very elaborate detail, they write in a circle, or this mirror writing, to get attention. But actually, I read everything and because I enjoyed it. I didn't want to miss anything that they wrote. And so we developed this whole generation of people who listened to that show. And it was like my dream come true. I never, but I never realized it could actually happen. And, I, you know, I prayed the producers who let us do what we wanted. We had no fixed jingles or records to play at the top of the art. And that was a, a fabulous time. your passion for music has has shone through everything you've done and there's a really really lovely bit in one of your interviews in the book with Underworld's Carl Hyde where he mentions meeting Miles Davis and you become a little bit awestruck and I guess it surprised me because you've not only met but you spent quality time with so many bona fide legends that I thought maybe you wouldn't be awestruck anymore but it doesn't wear off. No I think no I mean but he's so casual way of saying yeah, we were there, and then we were Miles. I went, what, Miles Davis? <laughs> I saw him first. So, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, one of my great heroes. I haven't met all my heroes. I've never met Eminem, and he's one of my heroes. So, yeah, well, I think you need to... I mean, I'm a fan. I'm proud of that. Is there anyone that you think you might not have been able to keep your cool with? Once, a long, long time ago, in um, Monaco... I stepped into a lift and Paul Newman was in the lift. I couldn't handle it to step out. <laughs> so that, that, I, that was, I lost my cool over that. Couldn't handle that. Um, there were a lot of stories like just saying that then I was in, I was in Monaco, I got in a lift and Paul Newman was in it. There were so many stories that when I was reading, Hey, Hi, Hello, I was just like, they sound made up because you've just got these huge characters in them. So there were loads and loads of stories to choose from. But what is the maddest thing that has ever happened to you that you look back and just go, seriously, how did that happen? Well, it depends if you mean in a good or a bad way. You choose. Well, the worst thing that happened to me, which is not in this book, it's in another book, that I was in Cuba, uh, in Havana, and I got attacked. I hate that word, mugging, but I I was attacked in a street attack. And uh, they try to grab my bag off my shoulder. Until it happens to you, you don't know how you're going to react. Mm-hmm. And I was walking on the street with a... I'd gone there again on the music mission. The guy, I was walking on the street with a Cuban businessman, a really nice guy. And we'd all just been out for dinner. We were walking back and stuff. And these guys from behind me 
getting hold of my bag, which they I should have just said, "Here you are, have it, have it, have it, take it away." I don't know what they use, but it's a baseball bat or something. But they attacked me from my right leg and broke it in three places, and that was a very hard thing to deal with and get over. But I did, and I said uh, said to myself at the time, "If you get through this, it will make you a stronger person," and mm-hmm. it did. But I wouldn't wish that on anyone. But I realise sometimes if you don't tell some of the stories that are not brilliant, it gives the impression that you've had this sort of gilded life and you just swoon through life and meet all these famous people. But I've written about that before. You need to let people know that things are not always glamorous and fantastic. But this book was really about five decades of pop culture rather than an autobiography as such. But I guess when you're going through your back catalogue of these interviews from like Mark Boland, Bob Marley, Mike Skinner more recently, there must be a lot of memories that come back or or come up because you're looking at the past. You have woven those interviews in with stuff that happened around the time that you did those interviews. Oh, yes, I did. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Like the summer of 76 and the heat and Bob Marley. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it helps you bring you back contextualize what was happening at the time mm-hmm. in general and punk and stuff like that so yeah, it was a way of getting across some of that yeah yeah and I am absolutely not brown nosing you here but I was flabbergasted that you're 80 years old I, I didn't want to believe that couldn't believe it do you think music <laughs> and that passion has kept you young I think so yeah remember that because of the BBC policy and stuff I didn't get near a radio studio until I was 30 now, nowadays, there's people doing that kind of stuff when they're 15. Mm. So that, you know, it took a long time to get involved. And I always say about, you know, if you ever see interviews with film directors who've taken 10, 15 years to get a movie made, they nearly all kind of got white hair and stuff because it's taken so much of their life to, to get where they were, yeah. to get to where they are. And that, that, I think that's true. But I... I'm very, very fortunate that Radio 1, they say, well, you're there because you're relevant. And they mean I play the music that is relevant now. Some of my friends say, who are younger than me, most of them anyway, but um, they don't enjoy what I play. Well, fair enough, I don't mind. Um, you know, I, yeah, I probably am a freak, but I like <laughs> to hear things that I've never heard before. I mean, you know, John Peel, who was my hero, and so, you know, if you think about him... He played lots of weird music, and if he hadn't existed, it might have been not possible for me to do what I do. Yeah. I've got a big question for the final question, and I do realise it's massive, because you've overseen 50 years of the evolution of, of music and of broadcasting. So I wanted to know what, in your opinion, has been the biggest change in the music scene across those five decades that's made the biggest impact? Well, I think several. After the 60s, that generation, then in the 70s, you had a huge amount of different kind of music came in. So, you, you know, you had reggae and uh, hard rock and disco. And all I've, I've done a couple of documentaries which go out in November about punk and post-punk, by the way. Oh, cool. Uh, to cover the, the, the years I was on the old Grey Whistle Tour, which have not been retrospectively covered properly. So we cover that kind of 70s time and then the electronic 80s so it's progressed there's lots and lots of different changes and when I first heard Kraftwerk 
I thought that's it. Nothing, nothing's ever since done the same. I was always very, to me, electronic music was, you know, very much uh, the future, as it proved to be. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, you know, we've got grime, we've got drill, we've got what I play a lot of trap, future based. I mean, call it what you like. It doesn't matter. It's got to be good. That's my criteria. And I like the fact that it keeps moving and changing. I don't want to hear somebody put out a, a tune now that actually could have that was five years ago. We've heard that. Let's hear something else. And I'm fascinated to know where it's going. Where will Billy Eilish go? Now, that incredible talent. She's 18. She's like the biggest star in the world. I'm fascinated to follow her and see what direction she'll take. Things like that. So I'm, it's curiosity, a lot of it. I want to know where it will go next. I don't particularly want to play music that's been heard over and over and over. What's the point of that? I love that attitude because we're so often sold nostalgia as the bomb for everything. That's the way that we feel better is nostalgia. And actually looking forward can give us a lot more hope, I guess. Well, nostalgia, I'm terrified of. Um, <laughs> I really am because it just makes you sad. You can't go back however much you want to do in life, in relationships, in family. In, you, I'm sorry, there's no going back. You know, and whether the pandemic is going to, you know, I, we're not going to go back to, when they call that a new normal, I, it's a lazy cliche anyway, but we're going to have to face a very different world. Well, you know, we need to do that and be brave and courageous. So I see no point in nostalgia because it makes you sad. Yeah. So I think, oh, well, do you remember when, okay, we all like having a story about, do you remember that glass of me when it rained and blah, blah, blah. Okay, I'm not saying I've never discussed the part, but you cannot go back and it just makes you sad and makes you, you know, like wishing, you can't wish yourself back into something that's gone. And so you've got to embrace now, or you haven't got to, as my feeling, embrace now and the future. And what happens a lot with you get people going, it used to be, I wish I'd been around in the 60s. Now you get young people saying, I wish I'd been around the nicest. The nicest is as good as the sixties. It was fantastic. Yeah. For me. And I it wasn't my party. I was allowed in and that was a great privilege. But you can't go back to the nineties. So I'd say to young people, and that's another reason Bill made me one, is to say, look, you're a young person. This is your time. Make this time the wonderful time. You've got to put your but you've got you've got to contribute. You've got to go one. No gigs at the moment, but you've got to go support the new music and it might be a Thursday night it's raining and you haven't got much money to go but go out and, and be part of that society and then you'll get the benefit from it even if you're not a famous DJ or in a band or something but be part of it it gives you a lovely warm feeling so that's how I feel another reason of playing new music to inspire you hope you know young people to think yeah there is some good stuff out there I know, I feel I'm a complete freak, especially, you know, this, uh, the year doesn't mean anything to me. I never celebrate, I don't know why we celebrate age. I haven't done anything to, you know, uh, it's only genetic. My dad and my uncle were both grew to a great age. I think it's more genetic. So I haven't done anything to deserve or, 
you know, I mean, I, it's just fortunate that uh, I'm this struck down yet. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, well, I mean, come on, it happens everywhere. There's an obituary today in the Times of Doreen Davis, who is in the book, actually. I didn't know she died, but he, who used to be the godmother of Radio 1, who is the... Um, oh, she was in charge of the playlist. Yeah, well, obviously, she's very important. And I just read this up, literally just before I got in touch with you, and she's 92. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, so I didn't even, I feel very bad, I didn't even know that um, that she died, but unfortunately there's a lot of people dying at the moment, as we know, from different reasons. Well, Annie, I hope you're still broadcasting at 92, for sure. I think that would be amazing. Still playing new music. Yeah, you've got to go with the technology, keep up with this technology, and use the technology to make it make it work for you. I mean, I, I, it's very peculiar. I don't want to be the novelty. You know, I don't mean the kind of... I'm not there because of my age. That is, to me, a complete side issue. But, you know, I've, I think I've got experience. And uh, I hope I know more and better about music than I did before. And again, there's this guy called Clive Davis in America who's like the one who discovered Whitney Houston, people like that. Now he's of that age and they make a big deal about it. But yeah, it's irrelevant to me. You either can do the job or you can't. Hey, Hi, Hello is out on September the 3rd, published by White Rabbit and available from all good bookshops. Where can people find out more about you and what you're up to, please, Annie? Because you are on that there Twitter, aren't you? I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook. My Twitter name is AA Nightingale. I'm Annie.Nightingale on Instagram. But you can get this book on um, Amazon. It would be very nice to feel that um, it gets a, a wide audience. I've enjoyed writing it really very much, actually. Well, I think that shines through. I, I'm so glad you enjoyed it. I, I really did. Thank you so, so much for chatting to me. I've actually really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Standard Issue for All Women.